We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Just a moment to pray together. Father, I ask now that your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive everything that you would have to say to us today. Would you help us to believe that none of us are in this room by accident? Whether we are here every week or whether this is our first time in this room or whether we are sitting in a worship service for the very first time and can't believe that we're here. Help us to believe that we're here because you've brought us here and we pray that you would speak to us and we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, if you've been with us over the last couple months, you know that we've been going through a series in the Gospel of Mark and if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Mark is one of four books in the, in the, in the New Testament known as a gospel. These are basically the, the biographies of Jesus' life. They tell us about his, what he taught and what he claimed and what he did. And so if you, if you want to get to know who Jesus is and what Jesus is like, you start with the gospels. And today's passage is actually a great example of why that is the case. Because in today's passage, we get a very unique window into Jesus. We, we see something about him that you really don't see in any other gospel passage. Jesus gets very angry. Uh, in order to know someone, I said the gospels are where you start to get to know Jesus. You know, in order to really get to know somebody, you've got to understand their anger, right? If all you ever get from someone is kind of the nice, polite stuff, you don't really know that person. They, that's just an acquaintance. But real friendship... Real intimacy is actually when you begin to know and understand another person's anger. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you've been really angry? <clears throat> Anybody want to stand up and just share it with the rest of us right now? Um, <clears throat> maybe a little open mic time at church this morning. I'll tell you the last time I was really angry. It was a couple months ago. Um, I was on a run. I love to, to run, and I was on a jog running through the streets of Oakland, and a car drove by me, and, and they yelled out the window, run faster, old man. <laughs> I was so angry. And then I realized it was someone from our church. <laughs> They're probably here this morning. The things that I go through for you people as a pastor. <clears throat> Jesus is so angry in this passage. I mean, first, he's, he's yelling at a fig tree. And then he walks into the temple. And he starts throwing furniture around. And telling people to get out. Can you imagine if somebody... This is basically what Jesus did. Can you imagine if somebody walked into church this morning 
and started throwing chairs around and throwing all this music equipment around and telling everybody to leave. Jesus is full of rage and fury. And you see, we don't know what to do with this passage because this is not how we typically picture Jesus. You know how we typically picture Jesus? Just like that stained glass window right there. Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild, and all the animals loved him. That's not what's happening in this passage. Jesus is full of rage, and he is full of fury. Bertrand Russell, who was a, he was a 20th century philosopher, and he was not a, not a Christian. He didn't believe in God. He actually wrote an essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in that essay, you know what he said? He said, one of the reasons that he cannot believe in the God of the Bible is because of this passage. He said he could not believe in a God who would get this angry. And some of you here today, you have that same problem. You struggle to believe in the God of the Bible because of passages like this and other passages in the Bible where God is full of rage and full of judgment and full of wrath. I hear this from people all the time. So many people are deconstructing their faith and leaving the church because God seems like an angry tyrant. But here's what all of us need to consider this morning. And it's what I think this passage is actually about. This passage is not about Jesus's anger. It is about what Jesus loves. You know, anger is always an indicator of love. The things that we get most angry about in life reveal the things that we most love and care about in life. Our family, we have a dog, and uh, we got this dog about a year ago. He was a puppy, so small and cute, and, and they told us, you know, he'll be about 50 pounds. This dog weighs 100 pounds. He's still growing, okay? He has destroyed everything inside and outside my house. And if you feel like I've got something to work out right now, I do. Because there's, I do not like this dog. And if you came to my house and you didn't like my dog, I, I would not care. If you insulted my dog, I wouldn't care. But come to my house and insult my wife. Or insult my children. Do something to harm them or hurt them. And I'm going to start throwing some furniture around and telling you to get out. Anger is always an indicator of love. And sometimes it actually reveals things that aren't so pretty about what we love. Sometimes we get angry when someone criticizes us. We get angry because we love people's approval. Uh, when our schedules don't go as planned, when life doesn't go as planned, we get angry because we love control. When the stock market is not going the way that we want it to, we get angry because we love money. <clears throat> Anger tells you what you love. 
And you see, if this is true for us, and we are made in God's image, then doesn't it make sense that this would be true for God? See, if you are here this morning and you really struggle with the idea of a God of anger, let me just challenge you for a moment. If you have a God who never gets angry, then you do not have a God of love. If you have a God who is ambivalent about everything, then you have a God who loves nothing. Anytime that God gets angry in the Bible, it is not despite the fact that he is loving, but it is because he is loving. And so here's, here's the question this morning as we actually kind of look at this text is, what does Jesus' anger in this passage teach us about the things that he most loves and cares about? Or let me put it this way. What does his anger show us about his heart? That's how you really know someone. That's how you have real intimacy with someone. You don't just know and understand their anger, but you know and understand what they love, what they care about, what their heart goes out to. And so what does this passage show us about God's heart? It shows us three things. Here's the first. It shows us God's heart for the world. God's heart for the world. Look look at the very beginning of the text. It says that the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Okay, just a two-second pause Do not read past that. Jesus was hungry. We we talk all of the time about the deity of Jesus, but we need to never forget the humanity of Jesus. Jesus knew what it was like to go hungry. He knew what it was like to hurt. He knew what it was like to cry. He knew what it was like to feel lonely and to feel weak and to feel afraid. He became like us in every way except for one, which is sin. There was no wrong in him. There was no evil in him. There was no selfishness in him. And so whatever you're going through today, there is such hope for you. And that one little sentence, Jesus was hungry. God doesn't just know what you are going through. God has experienced it. He has, he has walked life in your shoes. He's not a stranger to your struggles and your troubles. And he empathizes with you. His heart goes out to you in your pain. But then look at verse 13. It says, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus gets to this tree. There's no figs on it. It's barren. It's fruitless. And he curses it. He gets angry at it. So what are we supposed to learn about what Jesus loves from his anger at this tree? You know, does Jesus love apple trees and he just doesn't like fig trees? Are we supposed to learn that he loves, I don't know, orange trees, avocado trees? No. In the Old Testament, the fig tree was a symbol for Israel. You can find this in Jeremiah chapter 8, Jeremiah chapter 29, Hosea chapter 9, Joel chapter 1, Micah chapter 7. Now, what was Israel called to be and do in the Old Testament? They were called to be God's representatives to the world. God chose Abraham. He chose a single family, and he said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, but it's not just for you. No, it is so that all peoples on earth will be blessed 
through you. Israel was called to live out the ways of Yahweh, which was love for God and love for others, so that the nations would see it and so that they would come to know God and do the same. You see, from the very beginning, God's vision had always been to create a global, multi-ethnic family by choosing one family. And if you know the story, you know that Israel failed. They were like a barren, fruitless fig tree. And now we can actually begin to understand why Jesus is so angry when he goes into the temple. In the very next verse, look at this, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. The temple courts was a very specific part of the temple. There are lots of parts to the temple. The temple courts was the, was the very first area that you entered in the temple. It was actually the, the outdoor area of the temple. It was also called the court of the Gentiles. Why was it called the court of the Gentiles? Because that was the only place in the temple that the Gentiles could go. They could not go into the next area, which was the court of the Jews. And they definitely couldn't go into the innermost area, which was known as the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence dwelt. <clears throat> who were the Gentiles? Anyone who was not ethnically Jewish, who was not from Israel. Do you see what is happening here? The temple was the place where you met, went to meet with God. But what you have happening is cultural and racial and ethnic lines were being drawn to say only some people can go all the way in. And how does Jesus respond to this? He responds in verse 17 by quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. He says this, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Not some nations, but all nations. Not some people, but all people. See, why is Jesus so angry? He is angry because God loves the world. God's heart is not for any single geographic or ethnic group, but it is for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God's heart is not for people, for people from one particular color or class or culture, but for people from every class and color and culture. God, from the very beginning, has been determined to build himself a global, multi-ethnic, multicultural family. And you know how he wants to do it? He wants to do it through the church. The New Testament says that the church is God's new Israel. That means that the church is God's new community that is meant to reflect God's diverse family. And this is why you hear us talking about this all the time. That one of our core values as a church is that this would be a room of people who do not look like one another. Why do we do that? Because this is what God loves. This strikes at the center of God's heart. And when we talk about 
being a diverse family, friends, we are not just talking about getting together on Sunday mornings and trying to sing songs next to one another. No, we are talking about the goal of love and of relationship and of unity and of solidarity. It means that we're not just trying to sing songs next to one another, but we are trying to open up our lives to one another, to open up our homes and our tables and our time because we are called to embody this new family that God loves and longs for. But there is a second thing that we see about what God loves in this passage. There's a second thing we learn about God's heart, and it comes through the second piece of Jesus's anger in this passage. Look at this. Right after Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, and he says, my house is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. He says, but you have made my house a den of robbers. And that's that's actually another Old Testament quote from Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, what is Jesus talking about? What's he angry about? Okay, follow me for just a minute. When you went to the temple, you had to bring a sacrifice. It was God's way of saying, hey, you and I are different. And you can't just come walk right into my presence because I am holy and you are not. And I am perfect and you are not. And so you had to bring a sacrifice. Well, where did you get a sacrifice from? Well, you purchased it when you showed up. And you know where you purchased it? You purchased it in the outer area, the court of the Gentiles. This, it was this large outdoor area. It was the size of like several football fields put together. And so in, in the court of the Gentiles, you had all of these people who were buying and selling sacrifices. And so one theory is that the reason Jesus is so upset here is because he is, he is angry that sacrifices of any kind are happening. See, the New Testament says that Jesus came to put an end to the sacrificial system. This is why we don't do this anymore. But it also says in places like Hebrews chapter 10 that that actually didn't happen until Jesus gave himself up on the cross. And so some would say that the reason Jesus is angry is because sacrifices of any kind are happening. He came to put an end to these. But I think if you read more carefully, that's not the case. Because look again at verse 15. It says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts And he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers, listen to this, and the benches of those selling doves. Jesus is not angry that sacrifices of any kind are happening. He is angry that sacrifices of a particular kind are happening. The sacrifice of doves. Why is that significant? Doves were what you sacrificed if you were poor. See, if you had money, you bought a lamb. But if you were poor, all you could afford was a dove, which is why when you read in Luke's gospel, when, when, when Joseph and Mary go to the temple to dedicate Jesus, you know what they sacrifice? Doves. They're poor. And so what, what is going on here? Is Jesus saying, look, the poor don't need a sacrifice, but the rich do. You know, the poor are okay the way that they are, but the rich aren't. No. No. Notice that Jesus' anger is not directed at those who are buying doves. 
His anger is directed at those who are selling doves and the money changers. Who are the money changers? The money changers were the people in the temple courts who exchanged foreign currencies. If you came to Jerusalem and you weren't from Israel and you came to make a sacrifice, well, to purchase a sacrifice, you got to have Jewish currency. If you're an outsider, if you're an ethnic outsider, you don't have that. And so the money changers are in the temple to give you the money that you need to buy what you need to buy. But here's what commentators say. These money changers were ripping poor people off. They were jacking up the price on the currency, on the exchange rates. And guess who else was ripping people off? People who were selling doves. They were doing the same thing by overcharging. And this is why, this kind of makes sense of why Jesus says, you've turned my house into a den of robbers. You're robbing people. Jesus, if you've checked out, let me check back in. Here's, here is the summary. Jesus is angry because the poor are being exploited. He is angry because people are being taken advantage of and they're being mistreated. And you see, once again, we learn from Jesus' anger what Jesus loves. Jesus loves the poor. Jesus loves the vulnerable. Jesus loves justice. What we're seeing in this text is that God, is that Jesus' anger tells us that God's heart is not just for the world, but God has a heart for justice. Psalm 33 says it very simply. The Lord loves justice. And when most of us hear that word justice, we think of it only in the negative sense. We think, oh, justice is like the punishment of a wrong. But in the Bible, there's a much more beautiful picture of justice. There's also a positive sense of justice. And I'll give you an example of it. It's from Psalm 146. It says, the Lord executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Justice is much more than the punishment of a wrong. No, it is advocating for and loving and serving the poor. Amen. And the oppressed. And the vulnerable. And the widow. And the immigrant. And the orphan. And the marginalized. Friends, justice is not an addendum to the Christian life. And I will tell you, I spent many years as a Christian not knowing that. And you know what has taught me that? Being in this city. (laughs) That's what's taught me that. The justice is not an addendum to the Christian life, but it is absolutely central to the Christian life. You know the most famous, probably the most well-known verse in the Bible on justice is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says, the Lord has shown you, O man, what is good and what God requires of you. What does God require of you? Most of us think, oh, God requires me to go to church and me to 
read my Bible and me to pray and me to do Christian things. You know what Micah 6 says? That what God requires of you is to do justice and to love mercy. God loves mercy. God loves justice. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he calls you to love it too. He calls you to be just as angry at injustice as he is. Here's a great test for your anger, by the way. Because, you know, not all anger is good anger. Not all anger is righteous anger. How do you know if your anger is good anger? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you get angry at the things that God gets angry at? God gets angry at injustice. Or is all of your anger just self-revolving? See, justice, it is central to the Christian life, and let me say this, it is also vital to our witness as the body of Christ in this city. It's vital to our witness. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King wrote a letter from a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama. He'd been imprisoned for participating in a nonviolent protest against segregation. And he was very frustrated in this jail cell. And the reason he was frustrated was not so much because he was imprisoned, but he was, in frustra- he was frustrated by the apathy of the church to injustice. He had received a letter from Christian clergy, white clergy actually, who were urging him and all of the black citizens of Birmingham to stop protesting and to denounce their actions as unwise and extreme. And this is what he wrote in response to that. He said, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which made a strange distinction between body and soul and the sacred and the secular. If the church today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. That is why a lot of people are leaving the church. Because that is exactly what they have experienced it becoming. An irrelevant social club with no impact on society. And friends, if you are a Christian, I would beg you that your first response at this would not be to get defensive. We need to own this. We need to grieve this. We need to repent of this. Because justice is central to God's heart. And we need to work against this by working for justice, by caring for the poor, by advocating for the vulnerable, by fighting for those who are oppressed, by taking our individual and our corporate resources and becoming radically generous. Generous with our money, generous with our time, and generous in our relationships. So let me ask you a question this morning. How are you doing with that? And I'm going to guess a very small percentage of this in the room, we're we're feeling inspired by all of this, but the large majority of us are feeling guilty because we feel like we're not doing enough. And, you know, the question is, 
How are we ever going to become these kinds of people? You know, everybody loves to talk about justice. And everybody loves to talk about diversity. But let me tell you the truth this morning. Neither of these are easy. Neither of them. They are both incredibly hard. They require a ton of work, a ton of sacrifice. They will inconvenience your life to no end. And you see, if we're actually at all honest with ourselves, here's the reality. We have all contributed to the problems of injustice and division in the world. Every single one of us. We have turned an eye to those who are in need. And we have, we all, every single one of us, we have vestiges of pride and prejudice and even hatred in our hearts for people who are not like us. And so what is going to get you and me there this morning? And the answer, you know what the answer is? The answer is the last thing that we see about God's heart in this passage. We see God's heart for the world, God's heart for justice. Here's the last thing. Look at the very last verse. It says, The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Jesus Christ knew that the moment he walked into that temple and he started throwing furniture around, that he was signing his own death warrant. He knew that the moment he walked into the temple and started saying things like, this is my house, which is a claim that only God could make. He knew that he was forcing the hands of the religious leaders and that this was going to be a catalyst for his death on the cross. And the question is, you know, why do you do that? Why not stay quiet? Why put yourself at risk like that? Why, why publicly say these things that you know are going to lead to your death? And the answer is, and this is the third thing we see about God's heart in this passage, the answer is because God's heart is for you and me. John Perkins, who for decades was a a black pastor and very involved in the civil rights movement. He's in his 90s now. He wrote a book called Let Justice Roll Down. And in that book, he tells a story of how he became a Christian at 27 years old. His mom died when he was only seven months old. And when his mom died, his dad left. His dad abandoned him. The next time he saw his dad, it was almost five years later. He was, he was five years old. And he writes about that encounter in his book, and he says this. He says, my dad arrived late one Friday night. He woke me up, and I saw him in the glow of the lamp. He hugged me in strong arms, and he talked to me, my daddy. The joy of belonging, of being loved, it was almost more than my heart could hold. And the next day when he told me he was leaving, there was only one thing on my mind. I was going with him. I saw he was heading toward town, and I started following him. My dad turned, and he saw me following, and he said, go back, go back. The way he said it sounded strange, like he was confused. I kept following him. He turned around and whooped me with a switch from a tree. Please, Daddy, take me with you. Do not leave me alone again. There was a strange look on his face. I reached toward him and wanted to run to him, but I was afraid. He still held that switch. I could only stand there and cry 
and he whipped me again and again and again. And just then my auntie came and took me by the hand and dragged me away. I looked back once, but he was already gone. And with him went my newfound joy in belonging, in being loved, in being somebody for just a little while. Years would pass before I would know this joy again. That need for relationship was a weight I carried, a need that remained unmet in me much of the rest of my life until I realized that God the Father, instead of yelling, go back, came running towards me in the person of Jesus Christ. The Christian gospel says that the God of the universe came into this world in the form of Jesus Christ. And he came chasing after you and me. He came running after us. And it took him all the way to the cross. Because he doesn't just love diversity or the world or justice. But he loves us. And Jesus Christ knew that the only way for you and I to have a place in God's family was for him to lose his. He knew that the only way for us to survive God's justice and judgment was for him to bear it. And on the cross, that is exactly what he did. The justice of God came down on him. He got God's anger so that we can have God's love so that we can be God's sons and daughters and friends to the degree, to the degree that this becomes real for you and true for you, your heart will become like God's heart. You'll start to love the things that God loves, which is the world and people who are very different being brought together under the name of Jesus Christ. And you'll start to love justice and the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. And it all starts right here at this table. God brings us to this table every week. You know why? To show us his heart for us. To show us his great love for us. This table is not about your love for God. Our love for God, it is like a roller coaster, friends. It is up and then it is down. This table is about God's love for us, which never wavers. It is a love that went to the cross. It is a love that can make you into a son or daughter of the king. And if you have never, ever known that love, you can know it today. You can experience it today. It can come into your life today. Receive him. Look to him. Trust in him. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, He said, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. 
The New Testament says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table, a table that declares not our great love for you, but your great love for us. A love that would stop at no ends to chase us and to run after us and to win us back to yourself. Would you help us to know that love today as we come and eat and drink, whether it is for the first time or for the thousandth time? We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.